Welcome to Coffee and Therapy, where we spill the tea on therapy-related topics, sip our favorite coffee, and share our expertise with parents, professionals, clinicians, and anyone who could benefit from a little therapy. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Therapy with me, Alyssa, today, and a special guest, my friend, Julia Jordan-Lake, is here. Hello, Julia. Hello, Alyssa. Hello, everyone. Uh, Julia is not just a friend, but also a colleague. She is a play-based, licensed clinical professional counselor, and she supports kids, teens, and their families at Urban Wellness Counseling. Uh, I will let Julia give a little disclaimer about that, because Julia is here out of her own fruition and her own thoughts. That's true, Alyssa. So for today, the views and opinions that I'll be talking about are my own as an individual, and they're also not necessarily counseling advice. So I recommend talking with um, a counseling provider that knows the needs of you and your family. These are more just helpful tips and tricks for all of us. Yes, absolutely. And I know everyone listening is like, okay, but you know, we have to say it because there may be someone who this (laughs) is the first episode they tune into and goes, wait a minute. And you know, this is just Julia's wonderful expertise, her experience working with kids. And I think Julia has a lot to share with us as we go back to school, school everywhere by now, when you're listening to this has started. I know a lot of places on the East coast go back after Labor Day or the Northeast. Um, But in the past few years, we've noticed the need to talk about supporting our diverse kids in schools, supporting LGBTQIA plus kids in schools, and how to really create those safe spaces. So that's what Julia is here to tell us all about. So I'm going to let Julia kick it off. And then, (laughs) you know, we'll just rock and roll for our listeners who've been here before, you know, we have so much to talk about, and so much to share. So hopefully you benefit from it today. Thanks, Alyssa. Yeah, so I think, I mean, coming back into school year this year, I think I've heard a lot of providers and teachers and families kind of thinking through how this is going to be the first sort of quote unquote normal school year. And I think, you know, just right off the bat, I think it can be really tricky when we're talking about normal because I don't know that anything ever again will feel normal after what lots of families and providers have experienced during COVID-19. So I think just right off the bat, it can be really helpful to kind of reframe the school year as its own kind of beast. Um, I mean, knowing what we know from the National Alliance for Mental Illness, um, one in every six kids ages uh, one to 17 have uh, a mental health diagnosis walking into the school year, and only half of those kids and teens are actually receiving treatment. Um, so if, you're, if your school, if your therapy team has kicked off the year and things are feeling a little bit rocky, just know that if your classroom or your caseload has 25 kids, uh, just about four of those kids will likely have a diagnosed mental illness. And half of those four will likely not have any therapeutic support. Um, so if you're feeling tired a couple weeks in, your experience is valid. Um, not only that, but we have about 214,000 students walking into the school year that have lost at least one parent or caregiver to COVID-19. Um, so not only are we walking into the school year with um, higher rates than ever of mental illness in our country with our kids and teens, but we're also walking in with a lot of grief and loss from students over the past two years. And I think this quantitative measurement of normal, that doesn't exist, right? I think that's been... 
a problem we have across the board. In the most recent episode that came out, Stop Shooting Yourself, if you haven't mm. listened to it, Julia, that's that's the name, yeah. of the expectations that are being placed on us keep getting more and more encompassing without yes. really a roadmap on how to move forward and unrealistic of teachers and students are expected to go back into the space of quote unquote normal, mm-hmm. whereas there wasn't a quantitative measurement for that before, nor is there moving forward. And we're not able to do that. It's a new space. Why are we working to get back to that when our reality has completely shifted? And the expectations already were incongruent with reality. So now it's just even more dichotomous of here's what you're expecting of me, but what's really actually feasible of me is in a whole other direction. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. And the CDC actually has released some some semblance of quantitative data on that. Sure. Over 2022, they actually looked at sort of the six primary factors that families and caregivers are reporting um, with positive mental health outcomes in their kids in the midst of sort of this new reality. Um, and so, you know, one of those big thing, big things that they have looked at um, during COVID-19 was this idea of resilience. And so as a caregiver, as a teacher, as a therapist, um, it's not always never for any of us that we're going to get it totally right. Um, I don't know about you, Alyssa, but there are going to be sessions that feel difficult. There's going to be things happening at home that are feeling challenging. Um, You're going to get a flat tire on the way to work. And so you might not always be able to bring your 110%, um, but it's the process of how you repair, um, not only in the treatment room, but as a family. How do you go back and say you're sorry? Or how do you kind of own your stuff when you do mess up? Um, And so that idea of modeling that for our kids, um, they're they're realizing more and more in the research and in the data that um, that really is an indicator of positive mental health more than perfection or um, returning to this normal. Absolutely. And that, like, I just, it's bringing me back to things we've discussed here that you're just reiterating, reframing with better research and data. So that's amazing of goals are not linear. Life Mm -hmm. is not linear. Progress doesn't just go up. The reality is this roller coaster and that resilience and that going back and apologizing matters more for the upward trajectory than keeping on pushing and fighting because that's just going to make you plateau or roll backwards if you can't acknowledge things and have those ebbs and flows of the reality of our world of goals of progress. 1000%. And I know you have listeners from all across the country, but one of the things and that's the really world. cool and the world, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. But walking into this school year, I can't speak for other countries, but I know in the United States for this school year, there are actually 12 states who are recognizing mental health days. And so if that's you and you're in your school district, I know Illinois um, and 11 other states, I think Washington, California, Um, But check out your state and see um, in Illinois here, we get five mental health days a year. So be sure to utilize that if that's that's something that you can add to sort of the rhythm of your resilience is being able to actually take a day for yourself this year is going to be super important. And the kids, right? Like the kids get, I can call in and say, my child needs a mental health day today. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And just to speak to that, too, I think, you know, we'll be talking a little bit about today. And I know on the show and other episodes, you guys have talked about sort of different levels of dysregulation or different levels of where kids are in their therapy journey or their process. Um, 
if your child is in crisis, I want to make sure that you have the information for where to reach out. There actually is a new uh, suicide and crisis hotline number that was updated over the summer. So it's a shorter number now. That number is 988. 988 if you ever need it um, for a student, uh, for yourself, um, for, for someone in your in your family or your therapy community. Um, obviously, you know, 911 and your closest local emergency room, um, as well as the providers in your area can provide some of that really good crisis support um, before we kind of dive into more uh, sort of non-crisis yeah. clinical strategies. I want to make sure people have that info too. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you're taking a mental health day, but it's more than that, that's the number for sure. And here in Illinois, I have colleagues and friends that are working for that number. Mm. So people are like, what is this? And don't understand, you know, a quick minute on that is it's a national initiative that is led by the states. So they have licensed clinical social workers, LCPCs like Julia on staff that work through responding clinics that answer those phone Mm -hmm. calls and go out to the emergencies. Mm -hmm. It definitely is currently a growing program. Mm -hmm. However, we need to use it. Mm -hmm. And so we don't lose it. Mm -hmm. Um, So making sure we are advocating for what we need and calling those hotlines. So they'll send out a mental health service provider versus an emergency service personnel that's Mm going to be able to respond to a mental health crisis or a mental health need. Mm -hmm. And then also refer you to where you need to go. So if you're not familiar with this, this can be a great way uh, to get where you're going. And just to say for parents too, if anyone had called 911 previously, a lot of the facilities that may have previously been booked up and not had beds available to Mm. manage crises because of this funding, they have been expanded. Um, And we are seeing more opportunities for people to get in where they need to go. So if Mm -hmm. you were disappointed by the quality of care previously, this is a new avenue and a new way that our world is looking at solving this problem. So here in the U.S., if you're having that need, I I highly recommend that you call. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good, Alyssa. And I think too, I mean, when we're we're talking about, um, you know, intervention and crisis and sort of levels of where we all are on our mental health journey. Um, I think, you know, one thing that's really important to look at, whether we're talking about schools or where your therapy clinic or um, even your neighborhood is located, is that um, especially for our kids uh, below 100% of the poverty line, one in every five of those kids will be experiencing a mental health, behavioral, or developmental um, disorder or experience this year. And so I think paying attention to where um, you're located in the midst of that as a provider and as a professional, especially, can be really, really important to make sure our eyes and ears are attuned to the needs of our community in that way. And knowing these resources, I so agree. You have to be aware of the people that are coming to you and the families and communities you're supporting. Uh, And if you don't know where to refer out to, uh, ask your supervisors, find those resources when you have time and space to do so. I mean, we, we ask so much of our caregivers, which Julia is going to get into how to protect (laughs) yourself from and create a safe space for yourself. Um, But Hopefully initiatives like this can start to provide more access for those individuals that need the support and couldn't previously afford to access mental health services. A lot has changed Hmm. and a lot of that taboo and stigma has hopefully changed, but we're going to keep breaking it down with tips here too. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, that's one of the biggest things, right? I think is figuring out first as a, as a provider or as a teacher, 
where am I right now? Do I have the space to even engage in this? Because I think it's it's perfectly appropriate in a team model and not only appropriate, but I think best practice, right? Yeah. If there's someone who has a little bit fuller cup or bucket that day, pull them in. Um, I certainly have benefited so much from the process of supervision, supervision and collaboration, not only with other mental health providers, but music therapists and occupational therapists and physical therapists. I mean, we're, we're here for each other. So if there's someone else on your team that has a little bit more gas in the tank left that day, um, shoot them a text and see if they can, can kind of rally around you and, and get you through that hard session or that hard conversation. Um, I think without that, uh, this, this work is impossible. We, we don't function alone as providers or as parents or as caregivers. So, um, I think first kind of checking in with yourself before moving into, um, the advocacy and the work for others is going to be super important. And I, I know you guys address that often. Oh here. yeah. I was going to say, if you haven't listened to the fill your cup first right. episode, that's right. highly recommend and finding right. your therapy people. Uh, I think that's so important. That's what I call you, Julie. I call you my therapy right. people. That's right. Yeah. And I think our world, well, in therapy world, if you can't check your therapy friend and say, hey, do you have space <laughs> space for a quick kind of check-in right now? Yeah. Uh, but I think in general, you could send that to your friends that aren't therapy related mm. and that now means something. Mm. Like if I just texted, you know, my best friend, Samantha, woo, shout out Samantha. <laughs> and <laughs> she listens. So she'll be like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, if I said like, hey, do you have space for me to ask you a question right now? She knows that means I have something big or heavy mm. that I, I might need to lay out there. Do you have space for me right now? And it's also okay to say, it's a really hard day. Can we touch base at this time? Yes. Uh, I think our world is starting to get better about that of, I don't have to be omnipresent and I don't mm. have the capacity to be. Mm-hmm. And I love you and I care about you. Here is absolutely when I want to make that meaningful space for you. That's or right. heck yeah, I have this minute right now. Um, I think we, especially as women, are afraid to ask for that when we need it or advocate for ourselves when we receive that text. And both, Mm. I think, are okay. So permission to do that and know that as caregivers, teachers, parents, therapists, if you don't have the space, it's okay. And you're allowed to tell people that. Yeah. And I think modeling that for our kids too, right? I think um, obviously in a developmentally appropriate growth oriented way, uh, we don't want to be sobbing through all of our sessions uh, or all of our classes for the day. Yeah. Uh, but I think modeling the process of, hey, I'm I'm having kind of a tricky time today. Um, and, and here's how I go about it as an adult um, who might have a little bit more capacity and walking uh, children and teens through that process. Um, I think so often we assume that those skills are innate and they're not. Um, (laughs) What you know- No, I'm like shaking my head so hard. (laughs) Right? Uh, What what we know as adults about um, boundaries and capacity and um, even coping strategies, we have picked up along the way or we have been taught. And so whether you're conscious of it or not, you are teaching um, children and teens um, with how you show up. And so uh, I think oftentimes we can be so nervous to sort of talk our uh, younger friends through that process. That actually is really critical to development. 
Um, I think otherwise yeah. children and teens can start to get really mixed messages. Um, if Alyssa, Miss Alyssa shows up uh, to session mm-hmm. and looks a little teary because maybe there was a tricky conversation earlier in that day. Um, and Miss Alyssa is saying, nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong. Uh, you know, let's keep moving. That can be a really confusing message for, for children. So I think spending some time thinking about how can I show up in a developmentally appropriate helpful and and still vulnerable way as a clinician. Um, I think particularly with our with our caregivers that we partner with right now, staying attuned not only to where we're at, but also to where they're at. Um, I think yeah. so often in waiting rooms uh, across the country, um, we're sort of taking kids back and doing treatment without maybe ever even looking up at the faces of those that are dropping them off. And I think spending a little yeah. bit of time just sort of checking in with the energy um, of, of where uh, where this kid is coming in from, I think can be so valuable to, to not only our goals clinically, uh, but also just that relationship with that family. Um, that family might just need a space for the day. They might not need, they might not need the best evidence-based treatment intervention in that moment. Um, I think so often for me as a provider, when I start to feel the pressure of back to school, I tend to feel that in my body in wanting to do more, create more interventions, print more things, photocopy more workbooks. And so often that can be um, my body's cue to itself that I actually need to do the opposite and I needed to slow down and I need to check in with the people who are a part of the work. I think same for teachers. Back to school tends to be a lot of take-home folders and a lot of notes and a lot of papers. Those things are super important, but I think sometimes we miss the human connection. And the research shows us that that is over 90% of the work, right? That is our primary tool as teachers and as therapists. And so, so often the stuff of it is really actually the least important thing for a child's growth. Um, It's who we are in that space to each other. And so um, I'm kind of preaching to myself here a little bit. No, you're fine. I'll jump in too. You had so many good things. Um, I mean, starting where you just left off, rapport and relationship are key to development, to growth, to that connection. And parents innately are fostering that at home. So you're the primary model. And then therapists and teachers as well. Therapists are likely the smallest part of a child's day, life, week. Uh, and then teachers more so, and then mm. parents the most so. So taking that time to focus on those relationships, I know people listening are going, I literally don't have time, right? Like mm. you're grabbing the kid, you're dropping yeah. off. You got to deliver your 54 yeah. billable minutes. So you've got six mm-hmm. w- minutes of wiggle mm-hmm. room, which is why I kind of love as music therapists operating outside of the insurance mm. system a little bit, because then I can say, here's what you're making, here's what you're paid, you know, hourly or salary, Mm. and take the time to connect with families. When we have a client who we meet for 30 minutes, we try to connect with the family for five to 10. Mm. When we meet with them for 45, we try to check in for 10 to 15. So it's really kind of those bigger hours. We try, and I try to be around too, as the clinic director of checking in with families in the waiting room, because a lot of them Mm -hmm. have been past clients of mine. Mm -hmm. And then I can kind of bring the team on things that are popping up or mm. what they're saying, because that is so key. And even if it's an email check-in or a system you create, Julia knows I'm yeah. all about systems and <laughs> optimizing. So maybe it's a, right. you know, a Google Doc or something you have through your private HIPAA compliant platform that's just a, a check-in for the week of, you know, on Mondays 
or on Friday afternoon after the week, can you fill out these really quick, like, yes, no, you know, or almost like a self-report, parent report, Mm. even data tracker added element that says, here's what was hard. Here's what was easy. Something you should really know, because I think that gets missed too, is, you know, one of our kids comes in and they're having the toughest session they've had. Right. And we're like, Mm. well, what's been going on? And then we meet with parents because a crisis happened and they go, oh, well, X, Y, Z happened. And you're like, oh, I understand why you didn't tell me you had so many other things. But if we had a system that would automatically tell you that that could be really helpful. We had partnered with like an app company who was developing something just like that, which I loved because parents have their phones. But I don't think the funding came to fruition, unfortunately. Mm. Um, Yeah. But, but I loved that idea of you could tell me what happened. Like if there was a really hard thing at school, mm-hmm. it would be in the app that was between all the service providers. So we'd know. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah, that's, that's imp- important. Yeah, it would be amazing. Um, yeah. And speaking back to something you said that I think is really important to revisit one more time. Of, yeah. We model those things in the classroom. I mm-hmm. think therapists, I have degrees in therapy and degrees in education, which has been really wonderful for my therapy work because I don't do enough things. I had to have multiple degrees, right? (laughs) Um, But teaching kids how to learn a skill applies to mental health as well, of that developmental scaffolding. Like you said, it has to be developmentally appropriate. We have to know cognitively where they are to teach that skill that we want them to learn. So if you're thinking of Bloom's taxonomy, which is used a lot in education, try to, you know evaluate if you can where they are so you know how to deliver the instruction in that format and a good model I use that I'm sure people listening you know this so I again I know I'm preaching to the choir but if you've just never heard this language it might be helpful of the I do we do you do model if I want to teach a coping tool a regulation Mm -hmm. strategy I do it I model Mm -hmm. it for you and I narrate why I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. Then we do it together, maybe in Mm -hmm. a more organic context. So it's tied Mm -hmm. to a memory. So it's purposeful. Mm -hmm. And then we keep practicing that together. The younger we are, the more the I do, we do Mm -hmm. is a chunk of the learning. Then you do. Then the child does it independently. And for most of childhood... It's co-regulation. You're living in that I do, we do. Definitely all through elementary school, but still through middle school and early high school. If we're thinking about how the brain develops, we don't have those executive function skills until later middle school, early high school for female brains and likely not well into high school for male brains. So they still need that model and support. Uh, And I think parents and teachers take that on themselves, that there there's something yes. wrong, that their kid can't do it alone. And it's, there's nothing wrong. Your, your That's child right. just isn't ready to yet. And we have to kind of live in that I do, we do. Um, and if you want a resource too, a great book is Yardsticks. I can't think of hmm. the author now, but I'll put it in the notes. Really talks about kind of cognitive levels in these chunks of where we are based on school ages too, which I really like. Uh, like so that. if you haven't read that one, that's a good one. Um, that can just help be a reinforcer for yourself or for parents of where should I really be expecting this child to be? Well, and I think along with that, Alyssa, I think we also can't 
hold on to skills no. when we're not regulated. No. Um, no. If, if you go to your own therapy as an adult, which I hope you do, I am a huge advocate, a therapist more than anyone need our own therapy. Um, but if therapy you go to your all. own, that's right. But if you go to your own therapy and um, you've had a really hard day and you come into the room and your therapist starts trying to teach you breathing skills, that is not, that is not what you need in that moment, right? You need somebody to sit with you and to validate, you know what, your partner should not have said that that way, right? Or whatever it is. Um, And I think sometimes uh, we expect kids to sort of latch on to this top-down approach, which is, um, this is a lot of the work of Tina Payne Bryson and Dr. Dan Siegel. If you haven't checked them out, Whole Brain Child is uh, just an incredible book for anyone partnering with with children, but this idea that um, a lot of behavior um, and a lot of more behaviorally based therapies, which I think can be really useful in some contexts, but that there is this model in a very um, sort of capitalistic productivity centered culture um, that we will teach children skills and then they will become regulated, right? And that that will happen in five to six sessions and we'll be good. Um, And I think that works really well in in some settings with children that um, may be coming into that space more regulated. I think where it gets a little bit tricky is when uh, children are coming in dysregulated into treatment um, or children are coming in uh, maybe with a different developmental level or different developmental skill set. And we are meeting them too high. And so top down teaching will not work um, in those contexts based on a lot of this really good research. And so instead using a bottom up approach, right, which is where a lot of our expressive arts therapies come in, um, where we're tapping into um, centers of the brain that um, we're actually able to kind of take sort of a neurological shortcut around. Um, And so we're teaching skills in a sneaky way, right? We are sort of encoding skills in a way where I might not be saying explicitly to a child, you need to take a deep breath. Um, But I am using uh, different forms and different modalities to um, start getting the child into a zone of regulation Um, getting a child into a space where their upstairs and downstairs brain are connecting. So then they are able to learn the skills. And then whether you're using more behavioral strategies or more child-centered strategies, whatever your modality is, um, I think the the base of it needs to be regulation, right? And so um, (laughs) this idea that uh, I, I use a lot with families is the hand model of the brain. And so Um, you know, if you, you take your hand like a fist and tuck your thumb underneath, um, uh, when you hold, hold your hand up, uh, with your four fingers, uh, pointing up. So it's doing a great job modeling it. You just can't see it. (laughs) Right. I only have my audio. So, um, that is your reptilian brain exposed, right? That was, um, way back in the day when we uh, needed our really good fight or flight uh, activation system, um, that is that part of the brain, sort of the two-year-old brain or for my yes. psych people, kind of the id, right? Yeah. You put your four fingers down over the reptilian part of the brain, that is um, a child's brain when it is online, right? That is a child's brain when it's regulated and ready to learn. Um, the, those centers of the brain um, become connected to the upstairs brain. So we actually have sort of a um, coding that has has evolved around our reptilian brain. So we are able to sort of function in society, right? Yes. Um, even though sometimes when you may be uh, driving down the highway, that reptilian brain may come up. For most of us as adults, those 
um, two halves of our brain stay connected. Uh, now, for a lot of kids, when they flip their lid, as we say sometimes in English, um, the top of the brain actually is becoming disconnected from that, that bottom part of the brain. And so if you're meeting a child in a classroom who has already flipped their lid, they actually will not be able to receive those skills in that learning um, from the place where they might have been 10 minutes ago. And so as far as, you know, tangible strategies for the classroom, I think uh, checking in with yourself, just like therapists, but then also knowing um, about being able to connect before you're correcting. So if a child has already sort of hit the point of no return, as I sometimes like to say, your role in that moment as a teacher, as a caregiver, as a therapist is to just sit and be with the child um, until you see that child kind of come back online. And if you watch really closely, you can sometimes actually see it in their eyes and in their body um, when that moment happens. Um, Well, they're reflecting it because when we're in that dysregulated place, our heart rate increases, our breath rate increases because we're in that fight or flight mode and likely fight right right. of because they're most children well if they're elopers it's flight uh but that's where that's coming from so you can see it in their body their their pupils have now uh dilated constricted so that they can see more or no dilated Uh, i try to think of my parasympathetic sympathetic responses and my brain is just thinking too many thoughts (laughs) yes so you can see it. You can see that they're elevated and escalated. And then you can see that come down. And time and space is crucial. That's but right. like Julia is saying, we cannot teach the skills. We cannot mm-hmm. use something like Bloom's Taxonomy without that. One of the phrases that came out a lot during COVID that I think people are going to forget, but we need to remember, we can't. you have to Maslow before you can bloom, which is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Okay. Like Julia is saying, we have to have our physiological needs met and moving up that pyramid of development before we can get to instructional and learning and that cognitive comprehension component. So we have to let kids come back to baseline. And from a music therapy tool as well, the first thing I I say is time and space. Be with Mm -hmm. the child, but drop the verbals. Mm -hmm. Give some space if that's what their body's showing you. Mm -hmm. And then from a music therapy perspective, I like to give tempo and rhythm and music that's sort of matching where we are. So mm-hmm. if we're in that elevated place, it's, I believe we've talked about in the podcast, it's a, a topic called ISO principle. So you meet where they are with music and then downregulate from there because it's mm. also really hard for children. Sometimes depends the kids I serve, maybe not um, you know, neurotypical brains that are in mm-hmm. some classrooms, but as we know, if, one in six children, you know, or one in five children Mm -hmm. is having these areas of need, mental Mm -hmm. health changes, some of those structures too. Mm -hmm. So you're getting a lot of kids who are neurodivergent in these dysregulated moments. That's right. Um, Sometimes we can't do it alone. So giving that cue to help downregulate. And maybe if you're a teacher and you're going, well, I don't, it's just me. How do I do that? Do it with the whole class. Don't even Mm. single that child out. Mm -hmm. Can we say, oh, it looks like we're not quite ready to move on to this Mm -hmm. new topic in math. Let's do some like movement. Let's bring ourselves down. Let's sit and listen and like drum a beat on our chest and get that energy out. And as you work your way down your body, you slow that beat down and modeling that for them. I think that's really helpful 
for everyone because you've yeah. modeled, you're in the I do and we do, and you're yeah. teaching those skills for another child who becomes dysregulated. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so many things, so many That's things right. there. Yeah. And I don't know, Alyssa, if you've ever been told to take a deep breath when you're feeling dysregulated, <laughs> but it, it is about the last thing you want to do, right? When Absolutely. someone says that to you. So sometimes even, um, you know, especially for some of my younger friends, I think, I'll even just sigh with them in that state. Yes. Yeah. Just like yes. that. And modeling with my body, a posture of openness and oh, it's feeling really hard today. Right. And just being there with them, you'll be surprised how much shorter um, that window of dysregulation is and our expansion for our window of tolerance that we talk about sometimes with yeah. um, stress tolerance and, and frustration tolerance. I think that just starts to open up. Um, when they have that sort of safe adult co-regulating. And yeah. oftentimes it's not even the words that we're saying, it's it's our bodies in the space. So yeah. if you're that teacher um, during lunchtime with somebody who is having a really hard time, I think so often as adults, we worry about the right things to say and those really high stress, high emotion moments at school. Um, just you being there with them is the work. Um, yeah. And I think my so much of my personal work as a therapist is, talking less, um, and, 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 uh, letting, letting my nonverbals, um, communicate with, with the child or the team. Those moments are so much more powerful than, than anything I could, could say in those really high, high moments. Absolutely. Auditory processing is one of the first things that kind of gets shut down and it makes sense because it's twofold. When you're in that fight or flight response, your ears are listening more. So everything that's being said is actually coming in really almost louder to our body. And if you're already overwhelmed, that's not what we want at all. So then our system defends and shuts that down. So we're not taking that in. And that's the actual like cochlear side of our brain taking in it when it's supposed to be integrated from a processing perspective, that auditory information, that higher level of our brain, like Julia was saying, when we're offline and we're disconnected, it's gone. Mm -hmm. So what you say, even if you said the most beautiful, amazing thing, and you're like, wow, that was yeah. such a gem. <laughs> Great. It was not, it was maybe heard, but uh-huh. it wasn't processed and it wasn't stored in that hippocampus and working memory and moving to our long-term memory and executive functions for future retrieval. Not at That's that right. time. Those That's systems right. were offline. That's right. That's right. And like you were saying with adults of, I love this model of the fist and the hand. We'll have to like post a picture of it as a, a graphic for this. So everyone knows what we're talking about yes, in case. Yes. I think Julie did a great job, but as adults, those are often connected unless we're in a really high response state, but it's mm-hmm. because we've built those neural connections that That's right. we've fired them and wired them together consistently over time. And they've been built And it's also why as an adult, if you have that unhealthy coping mechanism Mm -hmm. of when you're distressed, you immediately scream and lash out, Mm -hmm. uh, it me, I'll be transparent, (laughs) right? It's because that was modeled for you. Mm -hmm. That was encoded. That was your stress response then. So if we're expecting children to operate from that connected place, we have to teach it. We have to practice it. Those neurons have to wire together and fire together and create that strong fatty myelin sheath so it can move quickly and efficiently. And that takes time. Yep. It doesn't happen overnight um, or over even years, right? There's no timeline. Every human's different. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, it's so easy to look at kids in school, right? Moving around the room or, 
getting dysregulated during recess or throwing things that appear. And we do the same as adults. I think we just have learned how to filter it out in maybe a more socially appropriate way, right? (laughs) I think as therapists, even we have our own quote unquote temper tantrums. Um, It just might look like I don't know, being short with a colleague or, mm-hmm. um, you know, being snippy towards the barista when you could have had a kinder response. I think yeah. so often um, kids are so much more honest in their emotional responses, which in a lot of ways is why I love working with kids and teens, yeah. because it's a really um, raw and vulnerable way of approaching our emotions. Whereas I think with adults, um, as much as I love partnering with parents and caregivers, I think um, part of my my passion is working before kids have learned to sort of um, put up different walls and filters with with the quote unquote temper tantrums. Um, So I think it can actually be a really powerful thing when we're able to reframe it a little bit that, um, you know, this child is showing me exactly where they're at. um, And that might not always be true of the family member or the the neighbor or even for myself, right? Or the expectations of the classroom. And that's That's the hard reality is this child is showing you where they are right now. It's not good or bad. It's not a label. It's Mm. just where they currently are. And right. I mean, what a, what a new perspective. That's That's the team. That's right. That's Um, right. And then what? Because that might mean that environment isn't the right fit for them or they're not ready for that academic load quite yet. It does not mean they're incompetent or incapable at all. I presume all of those things. It means what they need is not this. So how can we actually meet where they are to get them where they want to be? And I think that's really hard in public education Mm. because you have one person who is in charge of 20 people Mm -hmm. or more, depending on what state you're in, Mm -hmm. hopefully less, and it's impossible. Mm -hmm. And then that pressure comes on the parent. And then Mm -hmm. the parent feels, what am I doing wrong? Why isn't my kid doing this? And it's not good or bad. It just means what we're trying to have them access is not accessible for them right now. Boom. Boom. But I I mean, yeah, Yeah, no, keep going. going. It's more the, like, I'm, I'm, I hear it and I believe it, right? Something that has become so powerful in my perspective change and something I really want to fight for in my new thing, because I need a new thing to do, apparently, (laughs) um, is like systemic change of our Mm -hmm. education system as a whole, as far as age ranges go. Mm. Because the fact that a 10-year-old is operating from this highly dysregulated state and showing you they can't meet what you're asking of them right now, that's actually a realistic reflection of what we're asking Mm. because we're asking too much of Mm -hmm. most 10 year olds and we're seeing a higher increase in diagnoses, a higher increase in crises. And is it because more children have these needs possibly, or is it because the system has been moved so far away from what we're actually able to do mm-hmm. that it's causing this mm-hmm. when we have one in five children who mm-hmm. can't access the curriculum mm-hmm. effectively because mm-hmm. of whatever mm-hmm. diverse needs they're showing you mm-hmm. is it more just does, does our curriculum and our reality need to shift 
That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's not even to mention all of the different news and conversations happening, you know, every single day that not only kids and teens are reading and being exposed to, their parents are reading and being exposed to, but also teachers are walking into the classroom feeling like they're in the epicenter of this poll for time and resources. And not only do they need to teach and be advocates and and coaches and leaders and um, in a lot of cases sort of a an additional caregiver but now they also need to meet huge social emotional needs and I definitely think you know the classroom can be in a, a beautiful place to do that um, but I think when we're hearing from from so many teachers across the country that they are also feeling at capacity um, I think you're right I think it's it's so much easier to put the blame on the individual or even on the on the grade or the school than it is to kind of zoom out and take a really hard look at what we are doing I think when we start talking about kids it can be so often, uh, so so easy so often to focus on behavior and if you haven't read uh, Mona Della Hook's book uh, Beyond Behaviors yep. I highly recommend that one as well but um, can we be have so a much... link in another episode that's right <laughs> all right all right so yeah but it can be so much easier to look at that than to look at what have we done um, as a society making three and four and five year olds uh, self-regulate for six, seven, eight hours a day, right? Our whole model, even for the, the best equipped, the most wonderful um, schools and programs in the country, I think we're asking kids to hold such high level skills so young and for yeah. so long. I don't know about you, but I don't think at five years old, uh, I could have sustained regulation throughout no. the level of school day that is expected now. There's just so no. many more expectations. And the teachers are saying that, right? Yeah. Not only are they capacity and leaving, and we have a crisis of educators in this country, but the teachers are saying, I teach kindergarten. That's right. We are not supposed to be reading chapter books. That's right. We are right. supposed to be learning social play. That's right. We're supposed to be learning existence, autonomy, like all of these skills that it's fascinating because as these generations that have grown up in that curriculum, right, of I read books, we were reading by the end mm. of kindergarten when I was yeah. there. And Julia's a little younger than me, but not significantly so. And so I would suspect you were as well reading, expected yeah. to be reading by mid-kindergarten. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now as millennials in this generation, everyone's like, well, why can't you do this? Well, mm. we didn't learn executive functioning. We didn't learn regulation. Mm. We didn't learn these things. We did if we had parents who had the capacity to model that for us, or we went to therapy, mm -hmm. or we did some of that work as we got older, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes it worked out, but everyone's like, what's wrong with this generation or with Gen Z coming <laughs> up where I'm seeing it firsthand. They struggle to problem solve, mm. right? They, they know how to do follow tasks and directions. They mm -hmm. know how to do what you ask of them. They want to please and they want to achieve, mm -hmm. but they cannot put the pieces together mm -hmm. and they're smart. They're capable, they're competent, but this has been missed because mm -hmm. the focus was on task, mm -hmm. do, grow, mm -hmm. prove, test mm -hmm. high, mm -hmm. instead of with that root being on, okay, can you meet your needs? Can sure. you socialize with others, right? That kind of almost right. DIR floor time of, am I regulated and attending? Am I having meaningful connection? Am I, am I having reciprocal engagement? Right. Then am I having creativity and logical thinking and collaborative problem solving? Mm -hmm. We've gotten rid of all of that in the name of, can you read and can you do this? Now, literacy is, is crucial and very sure. vital. Sure. I don't want to nullify yeah. that. But 
why at five, right? Yeah. Can three to six be play? Can it yeah. be this social cognition, this yeah. autonomy and regulation of self? Then yeah. can seven to 12 be that focus on skills? Yeah. And if you're looking at Piaget in, you know, sensory motor, pre-operational, operational, we're not in operational mm-hmm. until beyond when we're asking children to be. Mm-hmm. And that's just unfair from a cognitive development perspective. That's and right. as a cognitive nerd, <laughs> it's really frustrating to see. So when teachers and parents are going, I'm so stressed, why? It's not you. Mm. It's not you. We're, we're, we have so much unrealistic drive in this world and it's yep. it's just so it's it's physically uh, truly painful for me yeah to sit through and watch well and exactly what you said parents and teachers can say i'm so stressed with their words right yeah. our kids show us i'm so mm-hmm. stressed right i don't know about you i think you know here in illinois a lot of our public schools have gone back this week and i see i'm so stressed in the body mm-hmm. i see i'm so stressed in the way that we are, you know, um, operating on the street, like you can just feel it in, in the community. And I think, you know, our area does a great job of trying to prioritize mental health and social emotional needs. And I know, uh, Alyssa has been involved a lot of that with partnering with schools and different systems. Um, but even so, right. I think it's, how are we, um, how are we listening for those I'm so stressed signals? And so I actually have coming up on September 17th, a little bit more information on that. Um, It's a pay what you can uh, talk and sort of collaborative conversation um, on a Saturday morning. So wherever you are um, in the world, feel free to to join me for that because I certainly want to hear some of the feedback of your listeners too and how students are showing I'm so stressed because I don't know about you, but um, I I don't hear that in therapy. I think yeah. that's yeah. that's not going to be something that a kid comes down and flops on the couch and is able to articulate, yes. right? And I'll leave the link for that for you all to sign up for Julia's talk Saturday, September seventeenth. If you can't make it to it'll be recorded. She's let me know, Thanks, uh, but she'll you know some of this will be in there and then explain explaining explaining. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I hope to expand. Yeah. Expand. I love it. I love making new words. Our listeners know. Um, But exactly. How do I view stress in the children that I support in my own children? I think parents of neurodivergent and non-speaking children Mm -hmm. are are masters of that Mm -hmm. because that body language and those things have become their way of saying, I am, I am done. I have hit capacity. But when we're speaking, because our world prioritizes language as the utmost form of communication, we forget to take in the whole body, right? And you said the whole brain child and brains and behaviors. Mona Delhook also has a new book, Brain Body Parenting, which is great, Mm. which we've talked about. I think that was on um, the Kate Shannon Children Are Not Small Adults episode. I'll link that below if y'all haven't listened. It ties into some of these topics we're talking about here, but being mindful of what you're seeing in your kids and in the students you serve because Mm -hmm. they're not going to tell you they're stressed, even if they have the words, because that also is viewed as failure in our Mm -hmm. world. If I say, Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm feeling a little stressed right now. Mm -hmm. And you had said way back when in this conversation, Julia, of telling them I had a little tricky thing and modeling some things Mm -hmm. for them. I love to say, 
this morning I'm feeling pretty tired. You know, mm. it's, it's our third day back to school. It's been, right. you know, a change from summer. I'm sure some of you feel that way. Here's three things I like to do when my brain's mm. tired. Let's take a vote. Who wants, mm-hmm. which one do you think you want to try with me? I really need one of these, right? Mm-hmm. Letting yourself kind of be the scapegoat mm. for modeling it and saying, I love that. I'm asking for help. It's yeah. okay. And here's yeah. some choices because you're teaching them to ask for help. You're mm-hmm. teaching them three strategy options, even if you don't model them right there. And That's maybe right. those are the three, three strategies you focus on for a month. That's um, right. This morning I'm feeling, oh, I am feeling so excited to talk to Julia. Mm-hmm. I got to calm down or this podcast is going to be on light speed, right? So you can, yeah. you can really just be almost a caricature of it a little bit authentically for you mm-hmm. to teach that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm sure Julia has some more tips. Dude, <laughs> well, and I out. think I think too, Alyssa, I think even being able to name what excited is, right? You talked a little bit about narrating. I think, mm-hmm. you know, even something as simple as I'm feeling so excited, my eyebrows are up, my fists are clenched, my voice sounds different. Yeah. Um, I think that's another big one too. You know, I think talking about sort of our developmental levels, I think we expect kids to know interceptively um, what their body is feeling at an age that really is not where we should be expecting that, right? Like my four-year-olds should not be able to articulate their emotions in the same way that a more appropriate eight, nine, 10 year old, right? Might have that skill and that capacity. But I think certainly for whatever age, that process in that rhythm of modeling um, what you're experiencing and the why. Um, I have kids who, um, you know, come in and colleagues who talk about um, kids talking about, you know, I think there's a lot of really good emotion vocab out there. Um, but maybe not actually being able to know what that word means in the sense that I don't know how to recognize it in my own body, right? Um, Part of where the collaboration interdisciplinary can be so important is um, being able to work with other therapists to help partner and figure out what does that feeling feel like? Yeah. Um, But so often, you know, we'll get preteens or teens who can say, I'm feeling anxious. And you ask, okay, so tell me, what does that feel like for you? And they don't know. And then that's going to be really hard to implement a skill. um, Because if I am going to try and introduce, say, progressive muscle relaxation, right, which is a really great one. You can find a lot of apps for this where you're sort of tightening and then loosening the muscles all the way up the body. You can do it in a desk. It's awesome. Um, But if I'm teaching that skill um, and my um, client doesn't know when they're feeling anxious, they're not actually ever going to be able to implement that skill in an appropriate way, even in a regulated state. So I think sometimes kind of backing it up a little bit can be a skill in and of itself in that really basic building block teaching of tell me what you think excited feels like. Tell me what you think happy feels like. How do you know you're feeling that feeling? And so many of our kids have a really hard time with that piece of it. Um, So from a social emotional learning perspective, that can be a great activity in and of itself. You could spend, you know, 30 minutes there with a group um, on the whiteboard, just kind of mapping out what feels where. Um, And you'd be surprised with with, um, sort of some of the insights that kids have once they start to realize the language that I have for a lot of this stuff. I don't actually know how to apply it, um, which I think kind of 
ties up everything we've been speaking to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Emotional ID and emotional understanding don't always go hand in hand. Boom. One of the first things I do too is like a body tracing exercise. Mm-hmm. Then they color in different parts of their body yeah. that feel different ways in tandem with something concrete like the zones, which can be a helpful tool. Yep. Um, so that's something too, if you're listening. And I love that Julia referenced this multimodal approach of a lot of therapies have a lot of these areas where we overlap, right? Like yep. occupational therapy is going to talk a lot about regulation and interoception. Music therapy is going to address it one way. The other creative arts therapy is another. Traditional talk therapy, yep. another. It's all about finding what resonates for yourself, your child, the children that you're working with. Try some different things. Try some different approaches because every kid really benefits in a different way. And if you can have that full team, awesome. But that's not always the reality, but That's I think it. you left so many awesome tips there, <laughs> Julia, for everybody. I I hope listeners feel they're not alone in this space because we're all sort of absorbing a lot right now. Yeah. And if you want more tips, go to Julia's training for sure, <laughs> or watch the recording. It's pay what you yeah. can. I mean, keep listening to Coffee and Therapy. Are there any other places you really want to point people, Julia, or ways to get yeah. in touch with you if you're open to that, yeah. if they need to refer to you? Certainly. Yeah. I mean, I think if if there are any uh, insights or if you'd like to, can you, to continue the dialogue today, um, feel free to reach out to me. My uh, professional email is julia at urbanwellnesscounseling.com. You can get a hold of me there. Um, I also, you know, would be happy to, um, you know, discuss further resources in the Chicagoland area. Um, certainly uh, Dynamic Leaks is a great place to start for a lot of those um, social, emotional, sort of integrative practices we were talking about today. Um, and if you, you don't know, know, that's my private practice. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. You're oh, Elvis is too humble. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's right. You're not plugging, not plugging your own business enough there. No, huh? I'll put it in the show that's notes. Right. I'll put both of in them. the notes. All right. Yes. Um, but certainly, you know, for, for other professionals, happy to, to collaborate on what referral sources might feel most helpful for you. And certainly for, for caregivers and, um, for, for parents, um, you know, feel free to, to reach out as well. Um, if there's any way that I can help sort of point you towards things, um, Alyssa is also a great contact, uh, in this area for, for sort of knowing, um, knowing, how to ask better questions about what your child might need. I think that's part of it is um, you can give a referral rate, but it might not be totally the right match. Um, Therapy can be a little bit like dating in that you (laughs) might try a few different options and it Mm -hmm. might just not be the right fit. And it could be the most evidence-based counselor in the world and they might not get your kid in the way that you do. And so I think Mm -hmm really finding someone who can um, empower you to fill your child's cup um, is is what we're looking for and kind of even looking for the right referral. I think um, it's less about someone that uh, even your child really connects with, though that yeah. feels really good to us as providers. Uh, my role is more that of the liaison. How do I fill up your toolbox so you can go back home and get done what you need to get done? Um, in the life of your child. Um, ultimately, our goal as uh, mental health counselors and other therapists is to fire ourselves, right? Which yes. <laughs> sounds really silly, yes. but I know I'm doing a good job um, when we're able to taper off and you feel like you are equipped and empowered to serve the needs of your family and your community. So um, reach out to, to either of us if we can help sort of start the conversation on what that might look like for you. 
Yes, please. I'll put everywhere <laughs> to find us in the show notes. All if right. you have any questions and all of that was a lot, email coffee and therapy <laughs> at gmail.com. There you and go. We'll get you where you got it. That's go. right. That's well, right. Thank you so much, Julia, for being here. Thank, thank you, you listeners, for tuning in. And we will see you, listen to you, be with you <laughs> next time on Coffee and Therapy. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Coffee and Thera Tea. Keep the conversation flowing and follow us over on Instagram at Coffee and Thera Tea. Questions, thoughts, ideas? Email us, coffeeandtherapy at gmail.com. We can't wait for you to listen in again soon.